Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast. Today, we're pleased to feature John Quinn of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. At the 2022 FFI Global Conference, he presented the session, The Evolving Dynamics of Next Generation Philanthropy. John, thanks for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on this very popular and important topic. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here and talk about uh, uh, about philanthropy. It's what we do. It's what I spend my time on. And we spend a lot of time thinking about the next generation of donors who are coming up. And part of that reason is because there's this massive wealth transfer happening right now between from boomers to Gen X, millennials, and to Gen Z. So anybody who's in the business of working with families or family businesses or family philanthropy is thinking about succession planning. What are the priorities of the next generation of donors? What kinds of issues do they care about? Are they planning on doing their philanthropy a little bit differently? And when I think about next-gen donors, I sort of want to, you know, there, there's sort of a, lot, a lot of popular myths or misconceptions maybe about next-gen donors. And I think some of those are right, and I think some of those are wrong. So part of what I do when I talk about next-gen giving is to try to sort of reaffirm some of the things that you hear about next-gen donors a lot of which is about, you know, they're going to do everything differently. They're totally going to break the mold. Philanthropy is never going to be the same. I think sometimes there, people are right about that, and sometimes, you know, people are not quite in the same ballpark about that. So when we think about next-gen donors, I tend to think about them as fitting into two categories. Uh, and one of the big differences about this sort of generation of next-gen donors is that there are two categories. We haven't had in, in American history that many periods where you've had two distinct categories of next-gen donors. One, we sort of bucket into the wealth creator category. And those are people who often, you know, they started a business, they originated their own wealth, uh, they sold a company, or they're still running a company that's doing incredibly well, and they're recasting a philanthropic legacy in their own image. That's one category. The other category are the donors who are inheriting wealth. Sometimes they're inheriting a philanthropic tradition, sometimes they're not, but they operate a little bit differently. The two categories operate a little bit differently. Is there one category that's overtaking the other in terms of popularity, in terms of exposure? So I think in terms of exposure, probably the wealth creators are the ones who probably get the most attention. I mean, you think a lot about, this is where you think a lot about tech philanthropy and tech donors, right? The, the Mark Zuckerbergs and Priscilla Chans of the world, the Mark Benioffs, all the folks who are doing incredibly well in Silicon Valley and, and really innovating philanthropic institutions in particular, uh, they get a lot of press. But if you look at where the money's actually coming from, the money's going to people who are inheriting wealth, right? Um, so I think there, that's another one of those misconceptions, right? If you just sort of read the headlines about next-gen donors, you would think, oh, everybody's a Silicon Valley billionaire. But actually, there's a lot of different types of donors who are next-gen donors. A lot of them are inheriting wealth, and not all of them are inheriting billions of dollars. And a lot of them are very quiet and private about what they're doing with their wealth, yes. where it's going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the big trends that we see actually with both types of next-gen donors, right, with the, with the wealth creators and with the inheritors, is different ways of thinking about accountability and public transparency because of the rise of new institutional structures that make it possible for donors to be a little bit quieter and to be a little bit less transparent with the public mm -hmm. about what they give. So you think about the rise of the LLC as a philanthropic tool which is a pretty newish thing in philanthropy, right? A lot of donors have 
sort of depended on the private foundation or their checkbooks or a donor advised fund for a really long time. But you see a lot of donors starting to rely on different kinds of institutional structures that allow them more control over the types of things that they give to and allow them to line up a bunch of different types of money that can go to different types of causes under a shared strategy. But let's talk about the generation what known as the rising generation. Sure. John, and the social consciousness that seems to be everywhere and a lot, a lot of it is I know media driven and social media driven, but still there's a lot of it. We we are paying more attention as a rule, aren't we? I think so, and I think in some ways that's another one of those differentiators between previous generations of philanthropists and the current generation. Uh, you know, when I when I started researching this topic, one of the things that was really striking to me was the extent to which every generation sometimes thinks that it reinvents the wheel, right? So if you go back and look at 60s student movement protests, the things that they were writing about their parents and their parents' inability to deal with race relations or the Vietnam War sound pretty similar to the things that a lot of younger movement activists say about climate change or race relations in the United States or you know the exploitation of the global south in developing economies. But what I think is really different is the urgency and the of the context that we're living in today, right? So let's take climate change as an example. If you believe the scientific consensus, we have about eight years until the sort of no-go moment in global warming, right? We have until 2030 to move global emissions on a path to get them below 1.5 degrees Celsius. I think a lot of younger donors see that if they're my age in their 40s or even if they're in their 20s and they think, gosh, I might not even have kids by then. That's eight years from now. So I think that spurs a lot of interest in acting fast uh, and in finding solutions that can be put to ground really, really quickly, which I think is, again, all donors want to see impact for their work. All donors want to see impact preferably sooner rather than later. But I think there's a kind of urgency to the moment that is really driving a lot of next-gen donors. Talk a little bit with us about the resistance to this kind of change in making money available for causes, the social impact causes, and the contributions in charity in that regard. Can can you examine that for us? Sure. So, so if you look at some research that we've done and that some other institutions have done about next-gen attitudes towards philanthropy, uh, there is an interest in pursuing a different path from the one that came before them, which is typically the ones of their parents or their grandparents. So there was a recent Bank of America study of, of wealthy Americans that suggests that 76% of wealth inheritors want to pursue a different philanthropic path than their parents. We do a fair amount of research on the question of time horizons in philanthropy, and in the most recent survey that we conducted, we ask, did the events of the last two years influence how you think about the future of your giving and change your priorities? And about half of the people that we surveyed said yes. And part of the reason why they said yes, one of the most popular reasons why they said yes, was because they want to create a different set of opportunities for giving for their children and their grandchildren. So that is on the minds of donors. Now, even as I say that, 
you still see next-gen donors putting their names on buildings, funding healthcare, funding education, right? So some of the tools remain the same, but I do think people are thinking about framing the questions a little bit differently than they did before. Well, it's, it's a different experience when you're talking about the environment, which is difficult to monitor in terms of your progress, your individual contribution, how much progress has that brought? Is there a way for some of these families to understand their impact better than ever before? Yeah, it's, that's such a good question, and it points to, I think, one of the central tensions in philanthropy generally, not, not specifically next-gen philanthropy today, because the historic model, right, if you're a Carnegie, as you were saying earlier, right, you built a library, you can actually go touch the library mm -hmm. and see if you built it, right? And in the early 1900s, you could get on a train and go to the next city and see the library. But a lot of donors are interested in funding causes that are less tangible, right, or that have whose outputs maybe are less tangible. Yeah. And so you see donors investing in movements the outcomes of which are not entirely clear to us, right? We don't really know what the future is going to hold. We're only making the best guesses that we possibly can. And so when I advise donors about the impact question, it's the first thing that I ask them is, well, what do you mean by impact, right? What impact do you want to have? Do you want to put your name on the building? Because that's okay. Or do you want to fund a movement on climate justice without really knowing where that's going to lead? only knowing that your impact is going to be in fostering relationships, right? And that can be a really good metric or tool of understanding your impact. But it's, you know, sometimes your grandpa might say, well, I can touch the hospital that I put my name on, right? What are you saying? You funded a movement organizer for a climate justice organization. That means nothing to me, right? Uh, and I think some young donors, especially with the younger donors, there's a little bit of tension there because there's a comfort in knowing that you're funding this sort of movement-based work, but you don't always see the direct tangible impact in it. And let's talk about the role of advisors today in this process, because you're dealing with sometimes older and younger mm -hmm. forces, uh, and we want to bring them together and have everyone on the same page, if possible. What advice are, are people like you offering advisors in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, listen, 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 then listen again, then listen again, then listen again. Um, one of the things that I think about a lot is there's the thing that people say they want, and then there's the thing that people actually want. And part of your responsibility as an advisor is to build a trusting relationship with the family or the individual that you're working with to really understand if there's a difference between the thing that they say and the thing that they mean, and if there is what it is and why it's there. Because whether it's in a business context or a philanthropy context, families never leave the baggage of being a family member outside the boardroom. They're always a sister and a board member, right? And so part of the trick of an advisor is to navigate between those spaces and still pursue the mission of the work, whatever work it is that you're doing there, while recognizing that, you know, 20 years ago, somebody made something incorrectly out of grandma's Christmas cookbook or something like that, and that conflict is still there at the table. So that's, listening is probably the most important thing. I think also understanding that um, not, not losing can be winning, right? So you might not always find the best hospital to put your name on, or you might not always find a silver bullet of a giving priority for a donor. 
But getting them to continue to talk to each other and to be at the table and to work together, that can actually be as much of a success as finding the right cause for them to support. Speaking of causes, are the donees, are they uh, becoming more savvy as, as the donors change and, and change with the times? I, yeah, so that's a, that's a hard question to answer because one of the challenges for people who are on that side of the table in the current environment is that they have a harder time getting to donors who might be interested in supporting their work because they're using donor advised funds or advisory services or LLCs or other institutional structures that make it harder for a grant seeker to go out and find them. So it, it can be really, really tricky. And I think one of the things that I say when I talk to grant-seeking organizations is you have to be able to code switch and go to a donor that's interested. You know, if you, let's say you're a civics education organization and you're going out to get, you know, you're, you're looking for grant support from a foundation. Maybe that foundation's interested in youth, youth development. Maybe that foundation's interested in democracy. Maybe that foundation's interested in teacher professional development. You have to be able to talk all three of those languages while still respecting the integrity of your work. That's and again, hard. Listen, listen, listen. To yes. find out who the target is and why you're approaching that person and not wasting their time and yours. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all about that sort of soft skill of relationships and empathy and really understanding who you're working with and who you're talking to. And it's that trust is the fuel for that, right? right? And it takes a long time to build. Well, due diligence, too, if you're giving your money to a cause, you want to make sure that that cause is legitimate. There are so many aspects to this. It's not just I want to give money and feel good and take a tax deduction. It's I want to do the right thing for the right people at the right time. Yes. Yeah, that's very, and that can be very tricky for donors because, because we have such a diverse and large nonprofit sector in the United States. It's not hard to find a dozen organizations that are working on the issue that you're interested in. So how do you make that choice? Do you look at you know, the ratio of overhead to program costs, or do you look at the background of the staff, or do you think about what kind of relationship you might have with them if you go on a site visit? Every donor is going to have a slightly different marker for what that due diligence, what piece of the due diligence rises to the top. And again, if you're an advisor or a family firm staff member or a family foundation staff member, your job is to know which one is the most important. And if you're working with multiple donors, how to stack them together so that it makes sense for each one who's going to make a decision. And in summarizing this, it doesn't look like the spigot is closing. No matter what's going on economically, these are still active organizations, family groups that have income, have money, and have the wherewithal and the desire to do it, whether or not they're doing it the old way or the new way, but they are doing it. Absolutely, yes. I think in a moment of economic uncertainty, one of the one of the privileges and powers, superpowers really, of philanthropy is that it can be there. Because nonprofit organizations, especially if they get government money in a time of economic uncertainty, are really stretched thin. And philanthropy can be there to step in and make sure that those organizations can continue to do their work. One more thing, John, and that is advising anyone in a situation like this to just tread carefully because these are big decisions that involve a lot 
and you want to make the right decision. Some people want to go headstrong, don't they? Yeah, I think it's easy to think, especially if you're a wealth creator, you know, I know how to solve problems. I want to jump in and I want to solve the problem, right? Because that's what you're trained to do. And that's a really admirable trait. Uh, but it's also true that what works for you might not work for the cause that you're interested in or the organization that's doing the work in that cause that you want to support. I think one of the real challenges that I'm seeing with a lot of the donors that I work with is this desire to move quickly, given the urgency of things that we're confronting today. I know I've talked about climate a lot, and I'll say it again. It's, you know, there's a, there's a ticking clock, right? If you're really interested or care about climate change and you're a donor that's interested in that space, you really feel like you have to move very quickly. But change moves at the speed of trust, which we've talked a lot about in the conversation that we've had today. It takes a really long time to build trust, and once you break it, it's really hard to build it back up. And so one of the things that I always talk to the donors that I work with about is the task here is not just about finding the right organization. It's about balancing that need for speed and the desire to make change happen really quickly with the fact that real change takes time, sometimes generations to unfold. And so part of what you're doing is sort of throwing a stone in the water and maybe the ripple is going to move something down on the other shore eventually. And holding those two things together can be really, really difficult because you want to see the outcome. You want to see the change, but you might not always be able to. And so wrestling with that tension is actually some of the most interesting part of this kind of work. Uh, but it's not an easy place for people to be, whether you're in my position as an advisor or, you know, the people, the positions of the people that I work with who are giving the money away, you know, because you want to see results. You justifiably absolutely want to see results. But sometimes it doesn't shape out the way that you think it's going to be. And I think part of what I want people to hear is that can be OK. John Quinn, thank you for your time and your attention to this important issue. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, great to talk to you today. Our thanks to John Quinn for this conversation about the rapid and widespread changes affecting the dynamics of next generation philanthropy. To learn more about FFI membership, go to www.ffi.org. For more FFI Practitioner podcasts and articles, or to submit one of your own, please go to ffipractitioner.org. This is Jordan Rich. Thanks for listening.